Hello everyone, it's Trevor again for another episode of the We Need to Talk About Movies podcast, films that I own that I have not watched yet, spin-off series. So if you're unaware of what the hell this is, I basically buy DVDs at a rate quicker than I can watch them. It's like only last week I went into a local Bernardo's store and they had DVDs in there free for a pound and I came out with nine for three pound. So I stash them on my pile, I write the name on a bit of paper, stick it in a pot and then each month I pick out random names out of the pot and choose four films at random to watch and that's what I've done this month again. So... I started this collection, this four, before I'd done the Star Trek films, which, you know, the original Star Trek was drawn out at random as one of these, and then I went off on a tangent and done the whole films. But not to worry. Without further ado, let's see which films I pick out of the hat and what I think of them. And then I'll come back at the end, we'll have a rundown, and then I'll choose out of the four films which film I liked the most and why. Okay? Just in case you're interested, I love this sort of thing. It's great. Anyway, see you at the end. Cheese! Okay, this time I'm doing a film that I own that I haven't watched yet, but I'm not choosing it from the pot. It's related to a film that me and Nathan have just reviewed, Boogie Nights, the story of Dirk Diggler, which, as you may or may not know, is loosely based on the story of the porn star John Holmes and there's a scene in the middle of the film in Boogie Nights one of the most famous scenes in Boogie Nights towards the end is where they go around to Alfred Molina's house to do a drug deal and it's a real tense scene well in real life there John Holmes had planned a similar drug deal which went wrong and led to an entire household being murdered um, allegedly in front of John Holmes and uh, it's known as the the Wonderland Murders. So a real true life crime. And as I was researching this for Boogie Nights, I found out that there was a film called Wonderland, which was all about this. And it starred Val Kilmer, Lisa Kudrow and Eric Bogosian. So I have only seen Eric Bogosian in two films I'm aware of, Uncut Gems and Talk Radio, which we reviewed the week before boogie nights so it's all sort of linked in so quite interested to see this movie so i've purchased it it's arrived and we're going to review that early this time okay so if i read you the back of the dvd case so wonderland on the afternoon of july 1st 1981 los angeles police responded to a distress call on wonderland avenue and discovered a grisly quadruple homicide the police investigation that followed uncovered two versions of the events leading up to the brutal murders both involving legendary porn actor john holmes you're about to experience both versions val kilmer is magnetic as john holmes powerful and it's a true story of la's most gruesome murders okay so shall we have a look let's have a look at this then i'll come back and we'll discuss chase okay so wonderland 2003 crime mystery now when this started it was a bit gimmicky you know there's a lot of sort of strange effects sepia tones and 
fast forwarding and then slowing down and you know real gimmicky sort of visual effects which things like that to me a data film they don't seem effective the film as we know is set in 1980s early 80s uh it never felt like the 80s for a second you know when you watch boogie nights you feel like you're watching a film that's taking place in the 70s and 80s in that transitional period this just looked like it was filmed in the year 2000 you know modern days even the costumes didn't look authentic to the period that it was being portrayed val kilmer was all right as john holmes he was good good performance but it's a strange a strange um i never knew if the director the writer and director were they didn't appear to be being too biased you know john holmes wasn't a nice character but he was very sympathetic to his plight so you get first of all the the murders take place at the very beginning you see john holmes and kate bosworth his like young girlfriend going around picking up drugs and she's been rescued at the beginning very beginning by carrie fisher um and then john holmes comes and she phones john holmes and gets him to pick her up and then they escape carrie fisher but it sort of sets up this strange relationship that john holmes has with this young girl but then as the that day progresses they go and visit the property on wonderland and she's told to wait in the car so you see it from her perspective a vcr or something comes through the window and then john holmes comes out he's got the money and he takes her back to the apartment he says wait here i've got to go and sort some stuff out then he doesn't come back for days and when he does he's not himself something has happened then it cuts to the next day and the news is broken that this murders took place and dylan mcdermott who's played plays david lind he's a motorbiker he's a bit of a crook and he sees on the news that this murders took place and then he goes to the police ted levine who we know as buffalo bill in hannibal i was watching it for ages thinking who is this he looks like robert deval i know it's not robert deval he looks like a poor man's robert deval but as the story went on the the performances were actually really good my favorite performances in this ted levine was really good in this like I say, Val Kilmer was okay. Kate Bosworth was pretty good as the sort of the girlfriend who's being sort of controlled by John Holmes, really. Tim Blake Nelson, who you'd probably recognise from Oh Brother Where Art Thou and the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, is it called? He plays one of the friends of, you know, one of the residents. I think he's the one who owns the apartment at Wonderland. So he's one of the criminal. But the real real good role, I thought, was Ron Lunis, um, Josh Lucas playing Ron, like the main criminal. And yeah, so he's one of the ones that but they've all been killed. And then it goes cut to David Lind, Dylan McDermott, going to the police and telling his side of the story, saying John Holmes was responsible for these murders. And then later on, you have John Holmes... They catch up with him and he tells his side of the story. So you see the two alternative versions. It's quite a good way to do it. You know, it sort of lays it on the line. But I did feel that at the end, John Holmes sort of drives off into the sunset, you know, and it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a shame ending. But the film was really good, but it was confusing. It didn't quite know what it wanted to be or what it was trying to do. It didn't have the sort of the finesse and 
style of, say, Boogie Nights. You know, it felt like a TV kind of movie. You know, uh, not only did it look too modern, but there was like a an inconsistent soundtrack as well. The, the soundtrack was sort of modern music and uh, it was just not consistent with the time. Um, so there was things that, as I was watching it, were grating on me from the start. But actually, as the film progressed and the story progressed, it was a lot more enjoyable than I had imagined it would be. I do like a true story and a true crime sort of story anyway. So this is quite an interesting one to see. Um, I must say I prefer to watch a documentary about things like this because you get you get the nitty gritty. You get lots of different people's opinions and facts and whereas you don't know what is right and what is wrong but john holmes you know explores his relationship with dawn schiller and together they're both sort of stuck in this rut they're both hooked on drugs and john holmes you know falcon was john portrayal of john holmes he's very much you know he's free basing all the time he's always thinking about where he can get gear from and he flits between the two properties, one at Wonderland and then the next property of Eddie Nash, who is Eric Bogosian. So Eric Bogosian's character, Eddie Nash, is is a bit of a a bit of a gangster. That's who they've based the Alfred Molina character on in Boogie Nights. He's almost dressed in exactly the same. But John Holmes, you know, would do anything for drugs and he even pimps out his girlfriend to Eric Bogosian to uh get hold of some money for drugs so it's val kilmer who suggests that they should go to eric nash and rob the place obviously then eric nash is not a very nice guy and then he he has a streak of revenge and goes around and murders these people some allege in front of john holmes uh, lisa kudrow's in there as well she plays sharon holmes who is john holmes's estranged wife and she sort of takes dawn under her wing the young girl and she's like saying you know just get away from him don't he's no good she's had enough but this young girl is still too impressionable and too easily led but yeah there was there was some good 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 performances throughout what felt like a tv movie really but you know maybe a little little bit more budget but as i say it just felt so dated and it felt so gimmicky that it won't hold up as one of those classic films. But an interesting portrayal of an interesting story. How's that sound? God, got there in the end. So anyway, that was a film that I hadn't watched yet. But as I said, not picked at random. So we will get back to the random picking next time. <laughs> Sup, bloods. It's Trevor here with some more films that I own that I haven't watched yet. Got me pot of names here. You know the drill. I'm excited. There's some good ones to come out. Last month was a bit of a a dry month, really. There wasn't the greatest films, but... Okay, I've got one. It's another Western. It's one my friend Mark has been on to me to watch for possibly the last 20 years. (laughs) And stars Clint Eastwood. I think it's Morgan Freeman and... Gene Hatman, and it is Unforgiven. Let me find the box. Okay, here it is. Right. Eastwood's best movie and the best Western by anybody in over 20 years. So it's 
Clint Eastwood, Gene Hackman, Morgan Freeman and Richard Harris. It says, Unforgiven is a modern classic that summarises everything I feel about the Western. Director star Clint Eastwood told the Los Angeles Times. Marking its 10th anniversary with his dazzling new digital transfer, Unforgiven rode off with four 1992 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Director, Supporting Actor, Gene Hackman, and Editing, Joel Cox. Eastwood and Morgan Freeman play retired outlaws who pick up their guns one last time to collect a bounty. Richard Harris is an ill-fated killer for hire, and Hackman is a lawman of sly charm. Chilling brutality. Well, it looks good. Um, It's got some really good documentaries on there as well, so I love a good documentary. Eastwood on Eastwood. Schnickel's penetrating 1997 documentary. All on account of pulling a trigger. A new 10th anniversary documentary. Eastwood and Co. making Unforgiven, an original documentary. And Eastwood, a star featurette. And a classic Maverick episode, Jewel in the Sun. So loads of uh, extra footage on there. But you don't care about all that. All you want to hear is what I think. Well, you might not. But all I'm here to tell you is what I think of the film after initial viewing. So I'm going to go and have a look at that. And I will get back to you with my thoughts once I've watched it. Cheers. So The Unforgiven. Just watched that from 1992 so i got the 10 year anniversary edition but it's uh it'll be 30 years old next year mental because clint eastwood is really old in it um and the guy's still going now it's it's quite yeah i liked it it was all right it's good you know there's some nice shots in there Love, like you know it's a western in it so there's a lot of sunsets with silhouettes it starts off with an opening shot of clint eastwood's farm or his ranch and the tree where he's burying his wife and the sunsets and you see the write up all about him and his wife. And then as the story progresses you realise that he's his wife changed him. He was a notorious killer, a drunk, and he fell in love and she sobered him up. You don't you know, you just you discover all this in the story. And now he's raising her children, um raising their children on this little farm and he is approached by this young lad who's a bit boastful and says he's got this bounty to do and this bounty is all to do with in the town of big brisky where little bill played by gene hatman is the sheriff in this town and two cowboys have slashed up this prostitute and little bill does really nothing about it he gets them to bring horses as a fine and the women are up up in arms about it. So they put the money together and then put a bounty out on these farmers' heads, which is where the young lad and Clint Eastwood come into it. So then Clint Eastwood calls upon Morgan Freeman, who's his old partner, and then together with the young lad, they travel across the Wild West to Big Whiskey to do the hit. It's interesting because it's not, even though there is a shootout at the end, there's not a lot of shooting in it like a western and it's all about you know assassins and them doing the hit but you've got clint eastwood it sort of looks back at his days and he's looking back for a drunken haze you know and he's affected he's obviously clearly has some sort of anxiety about it all and regrets deep regrets of how ruthless and 
you know how he used to just kill without thought. It's sort of like his character. You can imagine his character being the man with no name from the Sergio Leone films, you know, back in the day. And then this is the older version of him. So it sort of ties in like that because the old Sergio Leone films had just kill without thought and without hesitation, you know. Death in this film has consequence. And no more than, spoiler alert, the the young lad at the end of the film, when he finally does the killing and then you see it just completely destroys him. But it's a strange one because I'm not entirely sure who you're supposed to root for because Clint Eastwood is just doing this for the money for his family. But he's past it, you know. He is reflective of what's gone on, and but he's still willing to do it. So he's still got that sense of it there, you know. He's still got that ruthless killer in him. The young lad sort of exaggerating the truth. He's quite a dishonest sort of chap. Makes himself sound better than he is. Makes the the woman, the prostitute's wounds sound worse than they are. You know, he says that she's had her ears cut off and her eye cut out and her tits cut off. And then he meets up with Morgan Freeman and Morgan Freeman is, you think, oh, he's sort of going to keep Clint on the straight and narrow, but he doesn't. He's, as soon as they're in with the whores, he's off whoring. And with the young lad, Clint's the only one who's devoted to his dead wife, so he won't do it. And then you've got Gene Hackman, who's brutal. He's sort of made out to be the villain of the piece. But at the same time, he's just a sheriff who wants no harm done in his town. You know, he doesn't want this violence. He doesn't want these assassins to come to his town. So he's, that's why he's got a, a no-gun policy in his town. And when you meet Richard Harris as English Bob, having watched Fistful of Dollars and for a few dollars more... You see, the Lee Van Cleef character, I thought that English Bob was going to be like that. You know, he's going to be another assassin and they're all going to be fighting for the job. But he soon comes and is put out of the equation when he turns up with his biographer and Gene Hackman, little Bill, knows him. They have a history and he basically, he's reading the book that the biographer has written all about English Bob and sort of puts his story straight, you know. This bloke says he's this, but he's not. Then the biographer starts to follow Gene Hackman and likes to hear his side of these stories. And so there's that sense of glorifying violence, which is, you know, what Westerns have done throughout the years. And this film sort of puts it all on its head a bit, you know, makes you think about things a bit differently. But it's a slow burner. It's It was good right up until the end, Clint Eastwood goes into the bar and then it's, you know, there's the shootout and he kills Gene Hackman. But there's all the armed men around him and none of them take a shot. You know, it just seems a bit far-fetched and then he outshoots them all. It's a bit like Clint as Robocop, you know, or, or Sylvester Stallone. And 1992's getting on a bit past that, isn't it? So it's, it's an end of... The end I didn't really buy so much, if I'm honest. But... There were some good scenes in it. There's some, you know, the characters are, are well defined. I love the wild, you know, these wild landscapes. I love the feel of isolation and just being really back to basics. And I think Clint Eastwood, you know, he does a great job both in 
his performance, but also in the directing of the film. It's a nice sort of leisurely sort of Western pace. Gene Hackman is Gene Hackman, isn't he? You know, there's something endearing about Gene Hackman. I always think he's great. I do like watching him. He is a great actor. You always buy him, no matter what he's doing. And uh, in this, you know, there is a lot of comedy sort of tied to his character. He's building his own house and he's done his own roof. And everyone's saying it's not, you know, judging his carpentry. And then when it's raining and there's the downpour, you see Bill, little Bill and the biographer sat in the house with pots and pans everywhere, collecting water. That's, his house is absolutely leaking like a sieve. But yeah, I quite enjoyed it. And it sort of bookends the film with the same imagery, the shot of the the ranch silhouetted against a red sky, a red sunset, and the tale of his wife and his wife's mother. And uh, yeah, it was good. It was just the ending for me was a bit, felt a bit far-fetched, I don't know. But yeah, another Western done, another Clint Eastwood film. And yeah, glad I watched it. My friend will be glad that I've watched it. Um, But I will enjoy telling him that it wasn't as good as he made out. (laughs) Just to see his face. But it was, it was was good. But yeah, there you go anyway. Just blathering on now, I ain't got anything else to add, have I? Let's pick another film next time. Join me. Cheese. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Trevor here. Right, back at me little pot of DVD titles. Let's have a look. I wonder what I'm watching next. I always go for the middle. I'm going to go for one at the edge today. Yeah. What have I got? Oh, shit, I'm going to put that back. (laughs) Not really. Jerry Maguire. So, I was a bit of a Tom Cruise snob. I wouldn't really watch a lot of his films when I was younger. Um, but I think it's a Cameron Crowe film, isn't it? Which I have enjoyed some of his films in the past. So I'm a bit more easygoing these days. I'll, I'll watch things. Here it is. Award winner, Jeremy Maguire. Jerry Maguire. Not Jeremy Maguire. Everybody loved him. Everybody disappeared. Hmm, sounds intriguing. So I have no idea, actually, what this film is about. My wife has seen it before. Uh, I only really remember... The show me the money that used to get shown on everything. So let's have a look. Award winner, best actor in supporting role, Cuba Gooden Jr. Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise, Lions for Lambs. Never heard of Lions for Lambs. It seems a weird example of a Tom Cruise film. Is a man who knows the score. As top agent at Sports Management International, Jerry is unquestionably master of his universe. Until, that is, he gets a sudden attack of morals and is unceremoniously fired hanging on by a thread jerry is forced to start from scratch supported only by three very unlikely allies single mother dorothy boyd Renny zellweger her cheeky young son ray and rod tidwell oscar winner cuba Gooden jr a second rank player for the arizona cardinals and jerry's sole remaining client okay so yeah written and directed by cameron crowe who, I'm trying to think what films of his I have seen. Abs- I can't remember what it's called now. The one about the tour guy who goes on a tour with the rock bands. Absolute, why am I thinking Absolute Beginner? It's not, is it? I've got it over there. Almost Famous. Yeah, I know that's one of his Cameron Crowe films. I can't think what else, but anyway. Today's film, 
is Jerry Maguire. So I will watch that and I will let you know after that what my views are. Chase. So, Jerry Maguire. Um, it was all right. It's it's not that it's not my cup of tea, but it's just, how do you say, schmaltzy. Uh, quite obvious. There's moments in it where, you know, I said earlier, I, you know, I feel I disliked Tom Cruise for years. And perhaps I shouldn't have. You know, I have more of a respect for him now for what he does. But watching this film, I was hoping that I would enjoy it a bit more. But Tom Cruise is, you know, you got stars, you know, like Tom Hanks, who you can watch. And even though he's Tom Hanks in every film, is he brings a bit of humanity to his roles. Whereas Tom Cruise, to me, he's just... He's always cast to be the best of the best, you know. And at the beginning of this, he's the best of the best. And it's all a bit too much. Um, and he does his shouty bit in here, you know. And he, he does his broody-looking bits. And I don't know. As much as I'd like to like Tom Cruise, he doesn't It doesn't do it for me. There's something that niggles me about his performances all the time. And in this, it's completely... It, it still does. There's a lot that niggled me in this film, you know. It's all right. It's not a bad story. It gets a bit silly in places, you know. It's a comedy drama, but it doesn't know if it wants to be more comedy than drama. Or it's all a bit, a bit silly sometimes. And you know, the the scene "Show Me the Money" is the scene that everyone remembers, you know. Um, and I hadn't never seen it, and my wife and me watched it, and we both sort of looked at each other when he was doing that scene. It it was cringy. It was a cringy scene. It's a proper American film, isn't it? All about, yeah, the glory and the shouting and I want the money and Cuba Gooden Jr. doing his, like, dancing and uh, Rennie Zellweger uh, playing her dowdy, plain Jane girl next door. You know, she's kooky. She's sort of down, not downtrodden, I don't know. And when Tom Cruise is coming on to her, I know it's... It's not romantic. It felt really lechy and ugh, it's, it, it was cringy. Um, you know, but the story's, the story's all right. It's, his heart's in the right place. You know, he was the biggest, the best uh, sports agent there was. Um, and then all of a sudden he's had a bit of a, a pang of conscience. He thinks it's disgusting what they're doing. And he wakes up in the middle of the night and he writes about, what he calls a mission statement about how basically it should be a, a more of a relationship job where they're not just representing the sportsmen and women and getting them the best deals, but they sh- it should be a working relationship. But at the same time, you know, he's chasing after uh, Kush, who's Jerry O'Connell. He's a handsome, upcoming football star that everyone wants a piece of. And when Tom... Cruz's character Jerry Maguire gives up everything basically he, he he writes that mission statement and loses his job it's like his character then just loses all dignity when he leaves and I don't know he makes a fuss and basically only Lenny Zellweger sticks up for him um, and then Kush who's Jerry O'Connell as I said he's the handsome bloke used to be the fat boy in Stand By Me if you didn't know that already um, and now he's like this hunk 
Well, I don't know what he's like now. He was a hunk in this. Not that I found him hunky, but, you know, that's what he's cast as. Um, but even, you know, he's left with him and Cuba Gooden Jr.'s character, who's Rod Tidwell. He doesn't look like a Rod Tidwell, if I'm honest. I don't know what a Rod Tidwell would look like, but I just thought it was a bit of a rubbish name. Um, but Rod Tidwell has, you know, he's got a bit of attitude. He's got a bit of issues and resentment. He can't get the deals, you know. And even Tom Cruise can't get the deals. And Tom Cruise isn't re- doesn't really want him. He'd rather have Cush. But then he loses Cush, so he's forced to sort of deal with Cuba Gooden Jr. Cuba Gooden Jr. sticks with Jerry Maguire. And they, you know, they're all sort of stuck in this rut together trying to work. You know, he's gone from hero to zero. And now he's got to get back to being a hero again. It's quite well made. It's fast paced and... I like the way it cuts, you know, quickly. Some of the, like the introduction scenes, quite good. But it's all, it's, it's all really obvious. The, the stupid over-the-top scenes where, for example, where she's talking to her feminist sister and um, she's like saying, I love him, I love him, I love And you think, you would only say it once, but she's saying it like a hundred times really loud and he's eavesdropping. It's oh. Just, I don't know, it all just seems silly. And then Cuba Gooding Jr. when he's unconscious and like the whole world's on tenterhooks watching all the audience on the telly and in the crowd. And then he, he comes around at the end and then he starts jumping around and break dancing and playing up to the cameras and, oh, they love him all of a sudden. It's like, it's very schmaltzy, very melodramatic. And then Donna, my wife again, she said like when Tom Cruise gives the phone to Cuba Gooding Jr. and Cuba Gooding Jr. is like, well, the phone rings and he thinks it's, he thinks it's when he's Elwick, it's like Dorothy and it's, oh no, it's Cuba Gooding Jr.'s wife and he gives the phone to, rather than wait for the phone to come back to him, he's like, he races off and he's got to run all the way home to Rennie Zellweger and Donna's like, why do they have to make these big stupid statements? Why couldn't he just say, oh, I'll make a note to phone her in a minute. <laughs> and I know it's like, for film but yeah we're quite cynical things it just i don't know it, it all seemed a bit silly and a bit schmaltzy and yeah not my favorite film there's people who do comedy dramas better than this in my eyes you know um i don't know it was all right but yeah not my cup of tea well it is it's a sort it's the sort of story that i would like but there's just a lot in this that i was sort of like yeah, you know what? I'm not sure. That's that's my views anyway. Jerry Maguire. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Okay. Hi, it's me again. Got me a box of random film titles. They're all titles that I own, but I haven't actually watched yet. You know how this goes. So, we're in it. I wonder what we got today got one today's film that i own that we haven't watched yet is tigerland tigerland now that's uh i think that's a war film isn't it let me have a look let me go find it on my shelf i'm gonna look down in my war section because i'm pretty sure it is a war film tigerland i can't even find my war section oh 
Tigerland. Right. It's part of a free box set that I got. Includes the Fin Red Line, which would be the one I've watched. Uh, Behind Enemy Lines, Owen Wilson and Gene Hatman. And Tigerland is a Joel Schumacher film. I'm not the biggest Joel Schumacher fan, if I'm honest. Colin Farrell stars in this riveting action film from acclaimed director Joel Schumacher. I always find Joel Schumacher films are a bit too sort of commercialised. They don't feel... They're not so artistic. They're a bit gimmicky sometimes. They feel a bit mainstream. Do you know what I mean? There's nothing... I don't know. That's how I feel about them, anyway. Just released from the base stockade, brash, charismatic recruit Roland Boz, Colin Farrell joins a platoon of young soldiers preparing to ship out to Vietnam. Boz's independence and outright defiance draws fire from his own men as well as commanding officers who can't afford conflict in the middle of a war. But when the platoon is sent to Tigerland, a hellish training ground that is the last stop before Vietnam, Boz's leadership and character bring his men together, triggering extraordinary consequences. I do like a war film. But I've said in the past, I prefer a war film that's based on a true story. Um, I prefer a World War II war film, if I'm honest. But there have been some great Vietnam stories as well, obviously. Platoon, Apocalypse Now. So, is Joel Schumacher the man for the job creating a, a war film? Let's have a look. I'll meet you after I've watched it for my first impressions. Chase. Okay, Tigerland. So, it's year 2000. Colin Farrell looking fairly young in it. Actually, there's a few faces in there that were familiar who looked very young in it. Michael Shannon, who you might know as Zod from the uh, Man of Steel, also plays the failed FBI agent from Boardwalk Empire. And then uh, Shea Wiggum, who plays Wilson, also from Boardwalk Empire, plays Steve Buscemi's brother in that. But, yeah... A lot better than I sort of thought it might be. Really, really did enjoy it, actually. I said before that Joel Schumacher is not one of my favourite directors. Um, a lot of his stuff is very artificial to look at. I mean, he's done some good films. Uh, I'm not saying that. I'm not arguing that. You know, Falling Down was good. Um, the Lost Boys is a classic. Batman Forever, when he took over the Batman franchise was all right but like very neon looking you know with this film here as well there was a lot of it that looked quite fake um so most of it for the most part i'll admit it was effective i did like the look of it but sometimes it's like the footage goes too grainy and sort of high contrast and bleached and like almost this yellow tinge for a lot of it's good but sometimes it's like you don't need to go too it goes too far with it sometimes you know but apart from that, I thought the cinematography was fantastic in the film. It was like, from the word go, it was like real sort of close shot, handheld photography. And it helped to really create this chaotic energy between the platoon, sort of in the barracks and on the field exercising and stuff. You know, it was quite intense, sort of a lot going on. It was good. So Colin Farrell plays Boz. He's sort of young. He's cynical. He's against the war he doesn't want to be there he wants out and he doesn't shy away from the authority you know 
he sort of knows the ins and outs. He can see, he knows the law and how far they can sort of take things, I think. And he's willing to put himself through these punishments, you know, and it pisses people off. But he also uses his knowledge to sort of help get people out of the war when he can see that they're, you know, they shouldn't be there or they're, you know, they've chosen to be there for the wrong reasons. Like his mate Cantwell, who's a, a bit of a runt, gets beaten up at the beginning by one of the the uh, sergeants that has it in for for Boz, beats up this Cantwell. And then he's sort, of, he's sort of going to pieces. He doesn't want to be there. He tells Boz this story about his wife being disabled and they've got two kids. And then Boz is like, oh, you can get out. You don't need to be here. And he tells him how to do it and what to say. Sure enough, uh, Cantwell gets out. Um, but the real story, I guess, is the rivalry between Boz and Shea Wiggum's character, Wilson, who, you know, Wilson is, he wants the authority, he wants the power and he doesn't get it. And the more that Boz messes around and shows his disregard for authority, the more the platoon sort of unify behind him. Whereas Wilson is a bit of a bigger, he's a racist, he's he's a bit of an idiot, really. You know, he's too too gung ho, and he makes a lot of enemies, and people don't want to get behind him. And obviously, the sort of the platoon leaders, the leaders, the sergeants, and that see that in Wilson, don't give him the the respect he thinks he deserves, and don't give him the authority. Uh, and instead, they start sort of uh, handing it over to. Boz. So that's where the real rivalry of this, because they don't go into war in this film. It's all to do with the training and it's all to do with like the camaraderie between the lads, but also Boz trying to open their eyes to what they're getting themselves into, you know. Um, And so the rivalry and the tension in the film comes as Wilson becomes more and more sort of volatile, increasingly volatile, and he, he attempts to kill Boz once, you know he's willing to do it. Uh, and then as they go into Tigerland, then they're sort of pitched in two platoons against each other and you can feel this is where, you know, Colin Farrell is in peril because Wilson is a complete sort of psychopath, you know? It's turning into a psychopath. Um, I thought, yeah, I thought it was really good. I loved the first half of the film... You know, it's good fun. Farrell is, Colin Farrell, he's a great actor anyway. He's likeable in this role, in this role. And I enjoyed watching him and seeing him sort of, his one-upmanship over the, uh, over the sort of the authority figures and the way that he sort of taunts Wilson and belittles him, but sort of cleverly does it, you know, and Wilson's just going in for the cheap shots and calling, you know, name calling to people and has no respect for anyone. Whereas you get, you know, you, you're quite happy to get behind Boz and his intentions. Um, but the, yeah, the early scenes, like for the first half of the film, I can't really recall there being any score. I didn't notice a score. Most of it was done sort of just with the ambience of the scene and um, the score really just came in as they entered Tigerland. And that's when the film began to feel more like a film. That's when 
Joel Schumacher sort of got a bit carried away with his high contrast shots and making everything trying to look sort of like news footage, but it almost becomes looks like a bleached out pirate copy, you know. But yeah, I wouldn't say it let the film down, but it just sort of takes you out of it a bit, you know, or took me out of it a bit anyway towards the end but the beginning was great and then when the score does come in as i say it's when they enter tigerland but the music it's it's almost tribal you know it's a tribal sounding score so it's not like a, a dramatic score and it's it also just echoes this tribe that are training together and what they're going into but yeah i did it was a really good film in the end and a bonus being it was only an hour and a half long as well i mean sometimes films can sort of drag out can't they but this was just the perfect amount of time i didn't get bored watching it um as i said great performances all around and yeah really enjoyed really good directing so yeah tigerland definitely one to look for if you haven't already watched that from 2000 So there we go, another four films reviewed. Wonderland, Unforgiven, Jerry Maguire and Tigerland. Now, this month, which of these films was my film of the month? That's what you all want to know. Well, I can tell you now that out of the three, one of them I really thought I was going to enjoy a lot. And uh, although it was great, I didn't enjoy it as much as I had some of the other films in that same genre. And that was The Unforgiven. I was... Not disappointed, but I was a bit confused as to how I was supposed to feel about certain characters. I thought the ending with Clint Eastwood was a bit of a letdown. So, yeah, I've seen better westerns, um, and I know it's meant to be one of those modern classics. And, you know, there's a lot of realism in there, and a lot of sort of the views on the morality of murder uh, are quite, quite fresh for a western at that point. Yeah, there's just a few things about it that I wasn't overly impressed with. Uh, one of the films I watched was absolutely, I, I just thought it was diabolical, really. It was schmaltzy crap, and that was Jerry Maguire. I really just, yeah, it was it was a bit cheesy, a bit corny. Tom Cruise doing his overacting. Yeah, I didn't really think a lot of that. Um, so that was my least favourite film. So then it's between T- Wonderland and Tigerland. I didn't notice that. The two films with a la- land on the end. That's a coincidence. Now, Wonderland as well, a bit cheesy in places, a bit too... Sort of some of the effects were a bit... You know, it was a, a modern film telling a, a story of the 70s, but it's, it just seemed too modern. It didn't feel like it was part of that time. And sometimes the characters and the actors felt more of our time than they did of the time in the past. But saying that some of the actors and some of it was absolutely brilliant and it was a, it's a gripping story. But again, I don't know if it was trying to romanticise the John Holmes character or not. Uh, I couldn't really tell. So, which leaves Tigerland. So, my film of the month this month is Tigerland, which I really didn't think I was going to enjoy as much as I did. Uh, it's nice and short. It's a good little story. Uh, just some great performances in there. The directing got a little bit sort of Hollywood glossy and sort of too stylized in places. But apart from that, yeah, I thought a really good film. So this month's film of the month is Tigerland. How about that? Anyway, 
So that was another set of films that I own that I haven't watched yet. Please join me again next month when I will choose some more. If that's all right. If you fancy it. If not, don't bother. Just listen to me and Nafe talking all the other episodes. That's fine. You can do that. Anyway, thank you ever so much for listening and I will see you all again soon. Chase!